This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news in our world lead. The Pentagon said just moments ago that the Russian push towards Kiev and the Russian military's massive 40-mile-long military convoy are currently stalled due to a combination of logistics issues and unexpected resistance from the Ukrainian people. But Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby also said the U.S. does believe that Russian forces are currently regrouping. Across Ukraine, grim new scenes of destruction by the Russian military. More than 2,000 Ukrainians have been killed in Russia's attack since it began last week, according to Ukraine's state emergency service. 2,000, a number, a horrific number, that does not include the deaths of Ukrainian soldiers. CNN cannot confirm these numbers from the Ukrainian government. In Ukraine's capital of Kyiv tonight... What has become a hauntingly familiar sound? Air raid sirens across the city and on the outskirts of Kyiv. Military planes, fighter jets flying terrifyingly low, followed by this. Russia today also claiming to have taken control of Kherson. That's a southern port city in Ukraine of about 300,000 Ukrainians on the Black Sea. Although the government of Ukraine insists that the battle in Kherson still rages on, the Russians have not yet captured the city. The Kherson City Council says that at least 36 Ukrainians in that town have been killed in the fighting, including a 14-year-old boy. Let's get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who is live for us in Kiev, Ukraine, and CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, live for us in Odessa. Clarissa, uh, you've heard air raid sirens and at least one large explosion near Kiev in the last few hours Is the belief there that the Russians are still preparing to ultimately try and capture the capital? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion here now, Jake, as to what the Russian strategy is. For night after night, people have been holding their breath, going to bed, uh, many of them underground for their own protection and waiting to see what they would be waking up to. There are talks that have been supposed to start earlier today, the Ukrainian delegation on the way now to meet the Russian delegation, but no sense yet of how any any fruit really could be born out of those talks with the situation as it is. I will say that here it was quieter during the day, but then just a few hours ago, there was a very loud explosion, much closer than what we're used to hearing. And we understand now that that hit a main heating pipeline perilously close uh, to the main train station where thousands of people have been evacuating every single day. Uh, Now, we don't know if it successfully destroyed the heating pipeline and what sort of an effect that will have here in the city in terms of people's ability to get heat. Obviously, it's very, very cold here. There has been a lot of speculation for some time that the Russians might try to target heating, electricity, communications, uh, etc. But so far, Um, That hasn't happened. And as you heard uh, from John Kirby there, the Pentagon spokesperson, that convoy appears to be stalled. It is, however, still perilously close to this capital city of some 2.9 million people and everyone here essentially wondering 
when the next hit comes. Will it be in the form of a massive air assault? Will it be in the form of Russian troops completely encircling the city, potentially laying siege to it, cutting off food, supplies, humanitarian aid, medicine, things of that nature? Already, Jake, it is getting much tougher uh, to move things in and out and hospitals, other key infrastructure, complaining that it is becoming increasingly difficult for them to go about their duties, Jake. And Nick, you were just in Kherson a few days ago. Uh, what do you know about the battle for control of that city? Yeah, we've seen out the last two days, Jake, videos of Russian troops inside that city, leading away locals at gunpoint, breaking clumsily into stores, filling shopping carts. We've just seen a Facebook post by the mayor of the city, and it does suggest that he's made some sort of deal with what he referred to as armed men. He also suggests that armed forces, and by that I think he means Ukraine's armed forces, have in fact left the city. He outlines what sounds a bit like, I have to say, martial law, a curfew, people only allowed to move around the city during the day, pedestrians can walk one by one and a maximum of two, and that they should stop at the first demand, I presume, that is, of Russian soldiers there. It's clear the Russian military have a substantial presence inside the city. You heard at the Pentagon briefing just then the suggestion the city is still, quote, contested. Uh, from residents we've spoken to, the guns fell silent a number of hours ago. That may not be universally across uh, the city itself, um, but it is of strategic importance. It sits right next to a vital bridge that we reported on that comes up from Crimea, and it does appear from reading the statement from the mayor that some sort of arrangement has been made by him with what he refers to as the armed men inside that city. He says essentially in the statement that if those conditions are met, the Ukrainian flag can still fly uh, in Kherson. Although, look, I have to point out to you, we've heard previous statements from local officials in the past, particularly about the status of the bridge, and that's been overtaken by events, particularly when the Ukrainian armed forces have pushed back. I should say, though, for the videos that we have seen over the last 24, 48 hours, it does look a lot like the Russian military have significant control around Kherson. And this Facebook post suggests, too, they may have come to an accommodation, albeit one that sounds a lot like occupation under martial law by Russian troops with its mayor, Jake. Just the beginning, though, I think, of what we're seeing here in the south. The US have been clear that while there's been a stall in uh, Russian military progress in the north of the country, they've seen a better momentum in the south. Kherson, it does seem, is changing in its dynamic. Mykolaiv, the next town, the next major city to its uh, west, that is a scene of fierce fighting, although it appears to be holding Ukrainian control at the moment. Odessa, we heard sustained sirens just after dusk here for some time. Real fears that these images circulating of Russian warships on the coast that are not verified, but do seem to tally with Ukrainian official statements that Russian warships are off the coast here, that they might be heralding the amphibious invasion here that many Western officials have warned might be part of the broader Russian plan. You can't really control Ukraine and its economy without Odessa, and this city is very much on edge, Jake. Clarissa Ward in Kyiv, Ukraine, Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine. Thanks to both of you. Please stay safe. We're getting new images of the aftermath on Russia's attack on Kyiv's main TV tower. Those strikes killing at least five people, according to local officials. CNN's Alex Marquardt got a first-hand look at the damage. Russia has launched a new phase of this war on Ukraine's communication and information. This was the moment a Russian missile struck Kyiv's TV tower. Today, we walk through the rubble of the buildings below it. 
shown around by Rostislav, who joined the civilian territorial defense forces just last week when Russia launched their invasion. The 38-year-old is normally a hot air balloon pilot, whose wife and daughter have fled the country for safety. The Russian rockets on Tuesday landed all around Rostislav. First two, followed by two more. I saw them personally where they were coming from. I was standing next to the wall over there. As Russia ramps up its bombardment of both military and civilian targets in Ukraine, it warned that Ukraine's security services, communications facilities would be hit to, quote, suppress information attacks against Russia. Russia can't help but see that it is losing the narrative, the information war, with the world rallying to Ukraine's side and rejecting Russia in diplomacy, sports, business, and on and on. In the lead-up to this Russian invasion, there was a lot of speculation and fear that Russia would try to shut down communications, shut down power, impose a blackout over Ukraine. They have not been able to do that almost a week into this war, but in hitting this TV tower and announcing that they would be attacking other communications targets, that may be changing. While Russia claims to not be targeting civilians, Tuesday's strike killed at least five, the government says, the deadliest in the city of Kyiv so far. Near the TV tower was a gym, a fire still smoldering, smoke pouring out of the broken windows with gym equipment covered in dust and debris. At the garage next door, staff stoically cleaned up glass, broken ceilings, and threw out insulation. All of this just steps from Babinyar with its memorial for the massacre of over 30,000 Jews in the Holocaust, an area that has seen so much suffering for the Jewish people, hit by a Russian leader who claims to be denazifying Ukraine. This fellow who says he's coming to fight the neo-fascists in Ukraine comes and bombs that place, which is the memorial to the Jews who were killed by the fascists. But the TV tower is still up, now also as a symbol, reinforcing Ukraine's resistance against this increasingly harsh Russian invasion and standing tall. And Jake, we did speak with the owner of that garage, that auto parts store. Uh, she told our colleague Ivana Koratsova that she decided to stay open when many other stores closed because she sells essentials, necessities like auto parts uh, and oil. She also told us that her 18-year-old son has gone to fight against the Russians, joining those territorial defense forces. And she said, Jake, that right now Ukrainian women need to know how to make two things, borscht, the soup, and Molotov cocktails. Jake. Alex Marquardt, near Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks to you. To you. Uh, please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Adam Smith of Washington State. He is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. The Pentagon says, despite the fact that this massive 40-mile-long Russian convoy is currently stalled, they do believe uh, the Russian military is, is currently regrouping. Is that in line with your understanding, and are you expecting a full military assault on the capital of Kiev. Well, the first part, absolutely. There's no question they're regrouping. And, you know, they, there's no indication that Putin has backed off of his plan. So it is logical to assume that they're going to continue forward. The, the initial hope for a quick victory, for a quick encirclement of Kiev and other key cities in Ukraine, and to get them to surrender, didn't happen. 
They are regrouping. The key will be, once they've regrouped, what do they do? The anticipation is what you just described, that they would surround the city. And if you look at what Russia has done in other places like Chechnya and Syria, you know, indiscriminate bombing, attacking civilian targets, they get more brutal to accomplish their, their objectives. Will that happen in Ukraine? We don't know. But I think that is what, what people in Ukraine and what we have to anticipate happening, absolutely. President Biden confirmed today that he is considering banning Russian oil imports, although the White House seems to be now trying to walk that back a bit. Would you support that, even though obviously it would damage the U.S. economy? Yes, I would. I mean, that, that is the, the one key piece of the Russian economy that we still haven't gone after. And if we are going to do maximum sanctions, that's the step to take. Now, here in America, we've got to be ready for the fact that will drive up oil prices. That will drive up gas prices. Um, and if we are really standing with Ukraine, we have to be prepared to absorb that. But given what's happening in Ukraine, you know, any step that we can take that doesn't you know, bring about actual warfare with Russia, I, I think we have to take. Ukrainian President Zelensky is, uh, has asked the, the West and the U.S. to help enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Just to be clear for our viewers, that would mean... American men and women, Navy pilots, Air Force pilots, flying over Ukraine, potentially getting into confrontations, direct military confrontations, with the Russian military. As the uh, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, are there any circumstances in which you would support this? I, I, no, is the short answer. Because I said earlier when you asked about banning Russian oil, uh, anything short of open warfare. Because you know, the, the goal has been stated clearly by the Pentagon, President Biden, and others. We want to support Ukraine in any way we can that doesn't lead to an all-out war with Russia. Because the catastrophe would multiply at that point. A no-fly zone, that's war. You know, un- unless the person you're imposing the no-fly zone on agrees to it, then you have to enforce it by force. Putin and Russia are not going to agree to a no-fly zone over Ukraine. So we would have to shoot them down to enforce it. That is open warfare, and that that is a step that I don't think we should take, and I know the president doesn't think we should take either. Ukraine's foreign minister says he told Secretary of State Antony Blinken today that Ukraine needs more weapons deliveries as soon as possible. Do you think the U.S. should be taking a larger role in resupplying the Ukrainians, giving them a better chance against the Russians? Well, I think we are taking a large role right now, Um, and, and the more we can do, the better. It's stingers and javelins and anti-tank musicians and then basic ammunition and, and guns as well. And yes, we should be supplying the Ukrainians and working with our Ukrainians and working with our NATO allies to do that. We, we've seen NATO allies, non-NATO allies, are willing to do this. And the U.S. needs to be a leader in this effort. And I think that's what we're doing and what we're going to continue to do. What you did not mention just now are sending in tanks, sending in armored vehicles, sending in fighter jets. I've heard a few explanations as to why the U.S. is not doing that. Uh, from Ukrainian lack of expertise on how to use this high-end machinery uh, to fears of escalation beyond control to the idea that Ukrainians can't win this in a conventional war. They can only win it defensively. What is your understanding of why we are not sending the Ukrainians tanks and jets? Or do you think we should be sending tanks and fighter jets into the Ukrainians? No, at this point, I I really don't. Part of it is you have to be able to operate the equipment. People have also talked about, um, you know, Patriot batteries and other um, air defenses. Those are very complicated weapon systems that are difficult to operate, and we certainly don't want to send them in just to have them taken over by the Russians. And also, obvious point, tank is a lot tougher to get across the border than a Stinger or a Javelin missile. Um, I think the logistics are, are very, very challenging. 
So, you know, we're sending the weapons that we think will make the most difference. And yes, we also need to prepare uh, for a broader insurgency if the Russians are able to start taking over cities. Democratic Congressman Adam Smith, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. From Apple to Amex, a look at the companies refusing to do business with Russia now. And could it impact our economy here in the U.S.? Also, they cannot leave Ukraine, so instead they are fighting for their country with just a computer and a Wi-Fi signal. Our next guest is using the Internet to try to go after Russia. Stay with us. Back with our breaking news, at least 36 Ukrainians have been killed in the southern city of Kherson. That's according to local officials after an ongoing battle for control of the area with the invading Russian military. Many Ukrainians who cannot flee the violence or leave the country are choosing to stay and fight. Some use guns and others, like my next guest, are waging cyber war against the Russian invaders. Dimitro Bilkun is in Ukraine, sheltering in a compound in the woods, and he joins us now. Dimitro, thanks for joining us. You work for a software company that's been trying to combat Russian propaganda and disinformation. Tell us about those efforts. Uh, yeah, hi, Jake. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, the company I work for uh, is called Macpaw, as uh, one of the many companies right now in Ukraine who, who is fighting the Russian propaganda uh, who is also trying to mo- motivate people in Ukraine to to keep up uh, with the with the struggle, and also trying to inform the Western people about the uh, options of how people can help Ukraine currently. So th- those are like main three front lines that we are currently working on. You've been connecting. Right you've been connecting with regular people through messaging apps to disrupt Russian websites. Do you believe the Ukrainian government has the infrastructure to defend itself from cyber war with Russia? Uh, no, no. We, we uh, as a company, we, we we don't disrupt any website. Okay, that, that's that's the thing. Uh, yeah, we, we only the only thing that we're doing here uh, is 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 we're trying to reach some people in Russia uh, with uh, with the truth. So it's kind of anti-propaganda because the problem is a lot of people in Russia. They don't know what's happening here. I even know people whose parents live in Russia or in Crimea, and they don't believe the things that people describe to them. They're saying, "No, this that this can cannot be happening. It's it's you whose whose who's fault." The, 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 I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And how do you combat so, yeah. that? How do you com- how do you get the facts into the tr- the truth to these? Yeah. Russians and individuals in Crimea who have been fed these lies from uh, Russian state media. Yeah, it's it's only w- one of the one of the directions we're working on, and uh, and basically what 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 we're doing is we're creating uh, uh, blog posts with uh, sources to uh, truthful information, uh, and those we so we write blog posts and and we we just we just tell people. Things, things that are not going well here in Ukraine, and uh, exactly this and this is happening right now. And you can read more on these websites. And uh, and we know that it's working because actually today this web page on our website got blocked by uh, Roskomnadzor, which is a censorship monitoring agency in uh, in Russia. We've had uh, 200,000 visits in the last 24 hours uh, on that page before it got 
blocked in Russia. So it's available in uh, everywhere in the world except Russia. If it came down to it, uh, would you take up arms against Russia to defend Ukraine? Well, um, I think currently what, what we are doing is just as important. But if it if it comes down to taking a gun, yeah, yeah, definitely, because because we don't have we don't have any space to step back. We're just <laughs> we we don't have any options but fight. So you're sheltering in place with your family right now. Your dad uh, is a former uh, translator for former President Viktor Poroshenko. Uh, he's with you too. How are you all doing, Viktor Yushchenko? Yushchenko. Yeah, we're. we're we're doing we're doing pretty fine uh, com- compared to uh, other people. Uh, we we still uh, run to the shelter three to four times per day when we see uh, notifications about air- airstrike alarms. Um, thankfully, uh, nothing bad has happened in our area uh, yet, at least. Uh, but but still, <clears throat> still, it's very stressful. It's also quite stressful knowing that well, well probably you might be more uh, helpful to someone right now in uh, in other areas where where there's more uh horrors going on but 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 i i, I keep you know keep telling myself that, that the things that i'm working on are are just as important because because they are propaganda is a very very powerful tool right now and probably uh, propaganda is is one of the tools that led to this to these horrors that are happening right now because russia uh in in russia they were telling people for eight years that there are nazis here everywhere everybody's a nazi and 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 this and that that's that's basically just just a way for for them to brainwash people and now a lot of people in russia just they they don't want they don't want to know they don't want to believe that something is going on here so and and it's a very critical problem and we know we know that that these efforts that we uh, we as a company and other companies and people people all around are doing we know that it works because because today Russia first uh, accepted that they they have casualties uh, in this what they call military operation yeah Be- me- because yeah yeah go on well was, uh, they they know because you guys were able to get the real information out there is what you're saying. Uh, well, yeah, it's 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 not like it's not like that that we are giving out the information to people and people start to believe us. It's just the people start asking questions, and, and we see that in uh, Google, in Russian Google Trends, we see that that though that there are uh, queries in Google that that represent the the interest to to these keywords like casualties in, in Russian hmm. or uh, hostages or. All, all that stuff. So, so we see, we definitely see that people. Some people, of course, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of relatives of uh, military personnel, mm-hmm. and they they are, of course, they are nervous. And 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 our main objective is to 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 give them this message that, yeah. Dimitra Bilkun, stay safe. Thank you so much. Stay in touch with our team. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Russia is becoming increasingly isolated as more companies are refusing to do business in that country. Which ones are out? That's next.
In the politics lead today, fresh off his State of the Union address, President Biden is now hitting the road. Moments ago, he spoke in Wisconsin, pushing his bipartisan infrastructure law. It's all part of a travel blitz by the president and the cabinet today, trying to sell various parts of his domestic agenda. But as CNN's Arlette Signs reports, it's Russia's war in Ukraine and the larger geopolitical implications that continue to be top of the president's mind. President Biden in Wisconsin today to jumpstart his domestic agenda. But the war in Ukraine remains in focus. Vladimir Putin's latest attack on Ukraine is premeditated and unprovoked. He's rejected repeated efforts at diplomacy. He thought the West and NATO wouldn't respond. He thought they could divide us at home, but he was wrong. We were ready. The president acknowledging that Russia is targeting civilians, but stopping short of calling Vladimir Putin's tactics a war crime. We are following it very closely. It's early to say that. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations warning Russia could unleash a brutal campaign, citing videos showing Russian forces moving lethal weaponry like cluster munitions. To the Russian soldiers sent to the front lines of an unjust, unnecessary war, I say your leaders are lying to you. Do not commit war crimes. Do everything you can to put down your weapons and leave Ukraine. The Justice Department now launching a special unit targeting Russian officials and oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. Beginning tonight, the U.S. banning Russian aircraft from American airspace, with the FAA warning pilots Russian planes could be intercepted if they cross into American skies. The U.S. today also implementing new sanctions against 22 Russian defense entities and on Belarus, with the White House saying the country is enabling Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So far, the U.S. and its allies have not targeted Russian oil and gas directly, but the president not ruling it out. Are you considering banning Russian oil imports? Uh, nothing is off the table. This as the White House seeks to blunt rising gas prices, coordinating with allies on the release of 60 million barrels of oil from their reserves, as Americans are already feeling the pain of inflation. I know news about what's happening can seem alarming to all Americans. But I want you to know, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Now, the White House insists it is not prepared to levy sanctions on Russia's energy sector at this moment. The president and his, and his advisors keenly aware of the impact that could have for Americans here at the gas pumps at home. Jake. All right. Arlette signs uh, at a university where they still have a mask mandate until spring break. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Washington Post opinion columnist, Catherine Rample and, uh, and CNN business editor-at-large, Richard Quest. Uh, Richard, let me start with you. Today, American Express added to the number of big financial brands cutting ties with Russia. That's on top of the big names in tech and energy. When you couple that with all the sanctions on Russia, how much of an economic threat is this to our own economy here in the United States? Oh, I think it's going to take a hit. I think the economies of the West will certainly feel the effects. 
through just the difficulties and the supply chain issues. So it's certainly going to make a difference, but it's nothing, Jake, compared to the, uh, to the uh, terrible damage it will inflict, is inflicting on the Russian economy. Bear in mind, Jake, these companies, when they say they're withdrawing from Russia, first of all, they're doing it for legal reasons. Possibly they may not be able to trade because of breaking sanctions. So a lot of these companies have pulled out, maybe not necessarily for the moral purpose of punishing Russia, but also to make sure they don't fall foul of the very strict sanctions regime now in place. Catherine, many of these companies say they are suspending operations for now. Given what Russia is doing, can the companies trying to punish Putin eventually reverse course? Uh, or save face, or might these moves uh, be more permanent? It really depends on how Putin reacts to all of this. And just to be clear, some of these companies are also pulling out just because it's become so much more difficult to continue operating in Russia. If you can't get money easily in and out of the economy, for example, or you can't be sure that you'll be able to get American-made or otherwise European-made parts uh, for whatever you, you might be you know, producing in Russia, it's very difficult to continue operations, whatever the uh, you know, moral imperative may be to continue or to leave. But it really depends on how Putin reacts to all of this. You know, there is a universe in which Putin backs down. He decides that the economic pain is not worth it. Things aren't going well enough in Ukraine to justify continuing. But this is not a rational guy, right? There is another universe in which uh, he decides to escalate because he panics and he's disturbed by the plummeting of the ruble and and all of this economic uh, pain that his country is enduring. And so that will determine how easily it is for the rest of the world to continue engaging uh, economically with Russia. And Richard, uh, I think it's called, I think it's pronounced Maersk. It's one of the major uh, cargo shipping companies in the world, and they're now stopping operations in Russia. They're already signaling this is going to impact the U.S. supply chain, as you just noted. Uh, How severe might that be? How hard do you think this could impact U.S. consumers? It's making a bad situation worse. We know the supply chain issues were going to continue until the end of the year, possibly into next. Now, Musk saying that it's going to cut its Russia routes. Look, Jake, this is all about just-in-time manufacturing. It's about strained supply chains. It's about economies that are under stress to start with. It's going to make a bad situation worse. But I come back to this point. However bad we are going to feel it in the West, the Russians are going to feel their economy literally strangled and clobbered like we've never seen before as a result of of sanctions action. Maersk, a word I have read a million times and never pronounced until today or attempted to pronounce. (laughs) Richard Quest, Catherine uh, Rampell, thank you both. uh, Really appreciate it. What does turning the page on the pandemic look like? The White House laying out a big shift in COVID strategy. Stick around. In our health lead, life in a COVID world. Today, the White House announced a new COVID preparedness plan in an attempt to move the pandemic from a crisis to something of a new normal. The four-pillar plan relies on existing tools such as vaccines and testing while also preparing for the possibility of new variants emerging. But as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, Federal health officials say it is not yet time to do away with all COVID restrictions. COVID-19 no longer need control our lives. A new plan from the Biden administration turning the page from the COVID crisis to prepare for the future challenges of COVID. The president 
was very clear, as Dr. Fauci said, that we need to be prepared for any possible variant and invest in the next level, the next generation of treatments and vaccines. Funding from Congress will be critical for these efforts. The White House COVID-19 response team today announcing they'll stand up hundreds of new sites across the country where people can get free tests and free COVID treatments, along with rolling out a new website later this month to help people find free masks and vaccines, the latest numbers and guidance about COVID in their local communities, and giving Americans the opportunity to order more of those free at-home COVID test kits soon. And then if we continue to do all those things that work well, we'll have fewer people in the hospital because of COVID and we'll be able to go back to a more normal lifestyle. The government says it's creating new stockpiles of tests, antiviral pills and masks, while most critically, closely monitoring potentially emerging variants. If new variants emerge, we now have faster processes to assess the impact of the virus on our vaccines. And this plan ensures that we are ready to deploy personnel and resources to quickly update the vaccines. With an average of 1,800 Americans a day still dying from COVID, the CDC director says it isn't yet time to do away with isolation recommendations. We always prefer to have people uh, who might be infectious with an infectious disease home and not transmitting to others. Um, Certainly, we may consider to revisit that at some future time. But right now, with about 68,000 cases around the country um, daily, we're, we're not looking at revisiting that right now. And there's no decision yet on whether to extend a federal mask mandate applying to travelers, which is set to expire later this month. Jake, as the U.S. looks forward, so too does the World Health Organization, which is working now to develop a globally recognized vaccine passport, which would ease some of the obstacles still associated with international travel. Jake. All right, Alexandra Field, thanks so much. Coming up next, the state of Texas going after the parents of transgender children. And now a court is weighing in. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, the race for Texas governor has been set. Incumbent Republican Governor Greg Abbott will now face off against former congressman and Democratic candidate for Senate and then for President Beto O'Rourke. Governor Abbott is also facing a new legal challenge today. A number of civil rights organizations are suing the state of Texas, objecting to the governor's brand new directive, asking for investigations by the state government of parents of transgender teens who use certain medical treatments, investigations for potential child abuse. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us now live from Dallas. Ed, walk us through this lawsuit and how it all began. Well, this started last week, Jake, when Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton issued a legal opinion saying that certain uh, procedures and treatments of transgender youth could be investigated as child abuse. And then right after that, the Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, issued a direct uh, directive to the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to begin those child abuse investigations. And now we have learned that those investigations are underway. The ACLU and another civil rights group called Lambda Legal have filed a lawsuit against Paxton and Abbott on behalf of a doctor and the, and the mother and father of a 16-year-old transgender A girl here in Texas, ironically enough, that mother is an employee of the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. So essentially, the very organization that Abbott has directed to carry out these child abuse investigations uh, is investigating 
one of its own. This has sent shockwaves and chills through the LBGTQ community here in Texas. They describe this directive and these orders as harmful and dangerous for transgender youth in this state. Um, and this all comes as these civil rights activists say that they know of at least three different investigations underway so far. And these rulings were issued in the last week of uh, the early voting period before yesterday's primary here in Texas. And if there's any question, Jake, whether or not a lot of this is politically motivated, Greg Abbott's campaign manager was on a conference call with reporters this morning and said that this very issue is a 75 to 80 percent winner, a winning issues. Texans have common sense, and this is why Democrats across the country are out of touch. Jake? Ed, what are you hearing from the parents of transgender children? Well, this is something that especially families are very nervous about. Uh, this, uh, these treatments is, uh, and, and, and gender-affirming treatments can you know, run a, a, a wide gamut of, uh, from therapy to uh, other types of treatments and, and procedures. Uh, but there is a great deal of concern uh, especially when it comes to uh, issues of uh, suicide and, and, and that sort of thing. That's what many of these activists are so deeply concerned about. Ed Lavender in Dallas, Texas, thanks to you. Coming up, acts of resistance, small and large, as the Ukrainian people try to beat back the Russian advances. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour in Ukraine, where the Pentagon says the battle for the southern town of Kherson is still a very contested fight. This after Russia claimed its troops had taken full control of the city. Kherson City Council says at least 36 Ukrainians have been killed there, including a 14-year-old boy. New video shows Russian soldiers moving freely throughout the city, even looting a nearby bank still. Ukrainians continue to resist in ways large and small. Here, a man waves a Ukrainian flag in front of Russian tanks occupying the main square. To the northeast of Kherson, uh, hundreds of Ukrainians have blocked an access road to a nuclear power plant as Russian forces advance in the area. then on the western outskirts of Kyiv, fighter jets scream overhead, following by the sound of jarring explosions. Local video shows extensive damage after a missile landed on a residential neighborhood. Early reports indicate there are casualties, though it is not clear as of now how many. And as for that 40-mile-long convoy of Russian military vehicles, the Pentagon this afternoon says the convoy appears stalled and Russia is regrouping. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us right now, the Ukrainian State Emergency Service now says that more than 2,000 Ukrainian civilians, just civilians, not including Ukrainian military, have been killed in the last week. Russia's assault on Ukraine continues without mercy. This is what's left of a university in Kharkiv, the country's second city, amid a pounding of civilian areas. In the port city of Mariupol, also the scene of heavy shelling, local officials say hundreds of casualties are now feared. The United Nations has confirmed more than 500 civilian casualties across Ukraine in the week since this Russian invasion began. Ukrainian officials say the figure is much higher. 
you'd think those figures would scare people off the streets. But look at this scene from the town of Konotop, where a Russian officer holds up two grenades for protection after delivering an ultimatum demanding surrender. Shame on you, the angry crowd shouts. Just go back to where you came from. Minutes later, the local mayor sets out Russia's terms. If we start resisting, they will shell the city, he tells the crowd. But if you vote for it, we will fight back. The decision has to be taken by everyone, though, because the artillery is aimed at us, he warns. Across Ukraine, there continue to be courageous acts of civilian defiance against the Russian occupiers. This was a scene in the southern town of Melitopol, now under Russian control. Locals literally lying in front of these military vehicles to resist. And there's resistance on the battlefield too. Russian officials admitting nearly 500 of their own soldiers have been killed so far. Ukrainians say the figure is closer to 6,000. Either way, the human cost of this war is already tragically high. Well, Jake, well, it is indeed, but there's already been uh, more possibility of casualties as well. Tonight, uh, there's been an air raid on Kiev with a cruise missile being shot down, according to Ukrainian security forces. And of course, there's been much more shelling to the south in Mariupol, that strategic port city, and to the northeast in Kharkiv, which is still being bitterly contested by Russian and Ukrainian forces. There is one small glimmer, I suppose you could call it hope. Diplomatic talks are going to be resuming for a second round tomorrow inside Belarus. But at the moment, Ukrainian officials are not holding out much hope that they are going to produce any concrete results. Matthew Chance reporting from Kiev. Thank you. Please stay safe. Joining us now live to discuss Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. He's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Mr. Chairman, I want to start by uh, replaying a moment from President Biden's State of the Union address last night. I've made crystal clear the United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch, we're clear-eyed. The Ukrainians are fighting back with pure courage. But the next few days, weeks, and months will be hard on them. Mr. Chairman, despite the, the courage of the Ukrainian people, do you believe that ultimately they really just don't have much hope the Russians will prevail? I don't come to that conclusion. Although they are, you know, facing what could be considered overwhelming uh, odds. Uh, you know, I, I, I have seen the images on your channel and others, uh, as well as those sent to me, about average Ukrainians uh, doing what uh, your, your network just showed, uh, people standing in the way uh, of those very uh, uh, tanks, uh, uh, armored vehicles and whatnot, of engaging Russian soldiers themselves, of showing a Russian soldier who's captured and who they actually fed and then got to uh, go ahead and uh, uh, talk to his mother back at home uh, and, and turn into tears. Look, at the end of the day, uh, this 
is why, because of their incredible courage, this is why the javelins that just arrived in Ukraine, a thousand German anti-tank weapons that arrived, uh, several hundred Stinger missiles, uh, security assistance continues, including in the last 24 hours. We need to continue to uh, send to the Ukrainians both directly and through our allies and those who are holding our weapons and approving transfers, which I just did this past weekend on a whole host of things, uh, in order to uh, to get to the Ukrainians so that maybe the tide of history won't be what everybody expects it at the end of the day. Uh, and, and at the same time, when we freeze Russia's reserves abroad and he cannot get access to it, meaning Putin, well, then he doesn't have the money to fuel a lot of this in the longer term. So uh, I still believe that the Ukrainian people have have a, a real chance here, but it is it is an, uh, undoubtedly a very difficult one. Mr. Chairman, the Russians are claiming that they have captured and now controlled the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson. Um, the Ukrainians deny this. Um, how concerned are you about the Russians gaining ground in southern Ukraine and then forming that land bridge between Russia and Crimea? Well, it's clearly one of their strategic options. Uh, it is a real concern. Of course, that will allow them a continuous movement uh, across. Uh, but again, we, we don't have that confirmation. The Ukrainians, uh, you know, challenge uh, that proposition. Uh, but it, it is, a, a, you know, another concern that we have as it relates to how, how Russia has a strategic position. However, Russia has a 40-mile caravan of, uh, you know, critical equipment that it logistically not seemed to be able to deal with very well, which is why I believe they have uh, turned to the type of indiscriminate bombing uh, that we have seen in the last two days. And that is condemnable throughout the world. I mean, these are bombings against civilian residential buildings, hospitals. Uh, it, it, it is an abomination of what Russia is doing. I believe they amount to war crimes. You're part of a bipartisan group of senators calling on the Biden administration to grant temporary protected status to Ukrainians currently in the U.S. Here's a, a bit of a quote from that letter, quote, forcing Ukrainian nationals to return to Ukraine in the midst of a war would be inconsistent with America's values and our national security interests. As a nation, we must do our part to protect the safety of Ukrainians in the U.S. by designating Ukraine for TPS, temporary protected Status. Have you heard back from the Biden administration? How come they haven't done this already? I think th- I think this is under consideration. Uh, haven't heard uh, their ultimate determination. But look, uh, you can't take Ukrainians who legally enter the United States and happen to be here to then send them back to a war zone. Uh, you can't tell Europe and our allies in Poland uh, and uh, other countries. Uh, that are, you know, doing the right thing by accepting, you know, hundreds of thousands of refugees and then send back uh, people uh, uh, from Ukraine to back to Ukraine who are presently in the United States. That is the very essence of what temporary protective status is all about. It's for instances like this. And so I would expect the administration ultimately to grant TPS. I don't see how they do not. I've heard criticism not only from Republicans, but from um, some Gold Star families and veterans that President Biden should have mentioned the 13 service members killed in Afghanistan last August. Um, Do you wish he had? You and I have talked a lot about Afghanistan. Yeah. Look, uh, 
I think the president has recognized their heroic loss of life in the past. Um, I certainly welcome any time that the sacrifice of the men and women of the armed services of the United States can be recognized. Um, but it's not like the president has never recognized uh, their sacrifice. I think he has. Uh, but ever, but however, you know, uh, could could have he uh, said it once again? Uh, I guess he could have. And certainly that would uh, be helpful to the families who, who lost a loved one and can never replace them. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman, uh, Senator Bob Menendez of the great state of New Jersey. Thank you so much, sir. Good to see you again. A trip, Good to be with you. A trip no one planned to take. Thousands of women and children waiting for trains to safety as they try to flee Ukraine. We're live on the ground just across the border in Hungary. Plus, a look at how Volodymyr Zelensky went from playing one on TV to being an actual president and then a wartime president. Stay with us. Back with our world leader, warning today that Europe could be facing its largest refugee crisis this century. The United Nations says nearly 836,000 refugees have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded last week. 836,000 just in one week. One in seven have crossed into neighboring Hungary. More than half have escaped into Poland. As CNN's Ivan Watson reports for us now, none of them have any idea if they'll ever see home again. The train to safety arrives 20 minutes late, rolling across the border from Ukraine, loaded with civilians, all fleeing the world's newest war zone. This train brought hundreds of refugees to safety here in Hungary. The United Nations says more than 800,000 people have fled across Ukraine's borders in just six days. It is a carefully managed procession, families emerging one by one, expatriates from South Asia and Africa, and of course Ukrainians, welcomed by Hungarian officials and aid workers. Each handed a solidarity ticket, a free seat on another train to the Hungarian capital where more help waits. They will help them with, uh, uh, with traveling, with food, uh, with Wi-Fi, and all necessary things, okay. even, even with hotels. Among the new arrivals, Anastasia Hrankina, her son Mark, and their cat. Sharik, his name is Sharik. They fled Kyiv on the first day of the invasion. Two days ago, I was thinking that, uh, that this war is going to finish just in a few days and that we won't need even to leave Ukraine. Uh, but now I just can't uh, make any plans. I don't know when I'll see my family again. The Ukrainian refugees are almost all women and children. Absent here, husbands and fathers, men of fighting age, ordered to stay behind to defend the country. You're going to Ukraine now? Sure. Alexandra Shulenina was on a foreign business trip when Russia invaded. Now she's hurrying back into Ukraine to collect her children. My husband insists that I protect our children. So I take to my son, to my niece. We go to Europe when my friend waiting for us. And he stay at, in Ukraine for protect our country. Anastasia Hrankina's husband is also back in Kyiv, defending the city against Vladimir Putin's invasion. And what would you tell people in Russia? I would tell them, just get rid of your president. He's insane. Safe, but now uprooted. 
with no idea if and when these people can ever go home. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, they predict that there could be 4 million refugees fleeing Ukraine by July. And Jake, there's one other observation that I made today. All of the Ukrainians that I spoke to spoke to each other and to me in Russian. Why is that important? Well, Vladimir Putin has justified military incursions into Ukraine going back to 2014, claiming that he is protecting Russian speakers there from alleged oppression by the Ukrainian government. The 11-year-old boy I talked to today named Mark, who proudly talked about the Kiev subway system having the deepest subway uh, station in the world, he spoke to me in Russian today. So these are Russian speakers that are being made homeless by Vladimir Putin's invasion, whose fathers and husbands are staying back in Ukraine and now being killed by Vladimir Putin's troops. His logic has completely collapsed here. Complete. Uh, another example of, uh, of Putin's lies, just coming face to face with the facts. Ivan Watson reporting live for us from the Hungarian-Ukrainian border. Thank you so much. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, praising the United Nations today for voting to condemn the Russian invasion of his country. Zelensky tweeting, the world is with us. The truth is on our side. Victory will be ours. As CNN's Phil Black reports for us now, Zelensky has come quite a long way from small screen showman to defiant wartime leader, commanding the resistance from a bunker in Kyiv. There's one really good reason why even in peacetime, many wondered whether Volodymyr Zelensky had what it took to lead his country. His preparation for the job was pretending to lead his country. President Ukraine. In the popular Ukrainian TV show, Servant of the People, he played another unlikely president, a teacher suddenly elevated to the highest office after a private rant about corruption goes viral. In real life, his political party uses the name of the show as its own. Zelensky's showbiz career was all comedy and light entertainment, including playing Paddington Bear, in the movie franchise's Ukrainian release. Somehow, that path has led him to the role of wartime president at a perilous moment for his country. Is it fair to say that he was an unlikely presidential candidate and he is a thoroughly improbable wartime leader? I think that is fair to say. He's a man of um, extraordinary achievement and capabilities. Capabilities widely noticed through his recent example of leadership. Zelensky's videos from the streets of Kiev are being watched everywhere. Calm, determined, insistent the world must do more. And he's provided perhaps the most memorable line of the war so far, responding to a US offer to get him out of Kiev with, the fight is here, I need ammunition, not a ride. And you can be sure that that courage is appreciated and has strengthened his own people and their resolve to deal this this act of blatant aggression. He could personally make a difference to the outcome, you believe? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Look, he is now an international hero, a living symbol of standing firm against overwhelming odds. But it will not enforce In an exclusive interview with CNN's Matthew Chance, Zelensky played down the personal risks and hardship he's enduring. 
I'm the president of Ukraine, and I'm not iconic. I think the Ukraine is iconic, and I, 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 I always uh, was sure in it, and I knew it always, I knew it uh, that Ukraine is special country. Ukraine is the heart of Europe. Zelensky has met his foe. He sat across from Vladimir Putin during talks in late 2019. Clearly the junior, vastly less experienced statesman. Now Putin's forces are coming for him. This moment is revealing Zelensky's character as he rallies his people and the world to resist Russia's assault and save Ukraine's democracy. Before the war, Volodymyr Zelensky wasn't a hugely popular uh, real-life president. He was seen by many as having failed to deliver. In the lead-up, he often talked down the possibility of a Russian invasion, openly disagreeing with the assessments and predictions from the Biden administration that proved to be accurate. But since it has started, he has transformed into this symbol of Ukrainian defiance, this professional entertainer who says he knows he is target number one for Russia's military, is now being compared to some of Europe's greatest wartime leaders, including Winston Churchill. Jack. All right, Phil Black in London, thank you so much. Coming up, Florida's Republican governor uh, scolding high school students for wearing masks. Stay with us. In our politics lead, President Biden kicking off a post-State of the Union travel blitz to try to sell his agenda outlined in his speech. The White House says the president will travel all across the country to try to amplify what they see as an overall positive economic growth record from his first year in office. Despite the recent rise in inflation, let's discuss all of this with former Republican Congresswoman Mia Love from Utah and former Democratic Congressman Joe Kennedy from Massachusetts. So uh, let me uh, start with you, Congresswoman. Um, in CNN's instant reaction poll, the State of the Union address, the American people gave the president high marks on his messaging about Ukraine. 69% say the president's doing enough to address uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But only 47% and 46% say the same for inflation and for violent crime, respectively. Actually, let me start, let me start with Kennedy on this one, actually, because it's tougher for him. Clearly, most people polled say Biden didn't say enough about dealing with inflation. How big of a problem uh, is that for the president and for Democrats? Look, I think you heard him address it uh, in the speech very squarely. And I think, uh, Jake, you know, there was discussions given the crisis in Ukraine, whether the speech should focus solely on Ukraine. And I think you saw the, the White House and the president make a decision that there's this is a critical moment for domestic agenda. And the president's strength has always been his compassion, his empathy, his ability to relate with the American public. And if there's, I think, an overall theme to that speech, it was, I get it, right? I, I get the challenges you're confronting. We're doing everything we can. It's going to take some time. And he's actually, I think he's been on the record on that consistently saying, we're doing everything we can, but this is going to be hard. Congresswoman Love, I, I don't know if you agree with your colleague there. Viewers overall <laughs> did have a positive reaction to, to his first State of the Union speech in that instant poll, though. Only 41% had a very positive reaction. Most people watching the address, or there's a disproportionate number of supporters of the president who watch these addresses. 41% is the lowest number of very positive reactions yeah. since 1998. Why do you think that is? What is the president's struggle here? Well, I think, uh, of course, we're looking at two-thirds, I think, of the speech was just more rambling and really did not address the things that are facing the country 
Inflation is a big issue. Americans are feeling it. Gas prices continue to be a big issue. So if the president isn't specifically addressing those and saying, these are, these are the things that I'm doing to make life better for you, it makes him seem like he's out of touch. And this is not just a Republican perspective. This is obviously more than 50% of Americans. And so I, I just don't feel like he's actually course correcting some of the things that have gone wrong. It's, it's almost as if he gave a speech as if things were going really well across the nation except for um, Ukraine, and he really didn't have to make the American people feel better about the real difficulties that they're facing in their lives. Congressman, you disagree, I'm, I'm guessing. What, how, what do you think? I mean... <laughs> I do. Um, I think, look, I think he started very strong on Ukraine and got a strong bipartisan reaction, which let's give credit because that doesn't happen all that often. So I'm, I was glad to see that. But uh, Congresswoman, I think, you know, I would respectfully disagree. They, they did just announce um, uh, tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for uh, 60 million, uh, I think it was 60 million barrels released. And, and granted, I think they'd be the first to say that's not going to be enough, obviously a crisis at Ukraine, no one wants that crisis and the, and the timing isn't uh, great for this administration. But the fact is that there are structural issues here that are gonna be hard for them to, for any president to be able to address. Inflation's not something that they have the tools to be able to, to uh, address or to adjust you know, day to day. But they are, a, the, the portfolio that he talked about yesterday, um, particularly issues on childcare and um, some and prescription drugs are major issues that the American public is confronting and would make a huge relief with regards to people's pocketbooks. Congresswoman, let me ask you, because one of the most uh, memorable moments from last night was when uh, Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, a Republican, uh, shouted at and, and heckled President uh, Biden. He, he was talking about American soldiers who, who died after exposure to burn pits. That's a story um, and an issue we've covered a lot on this show. He was about to invoke his late son, Bo. Um, in a different era, that, uh, that sort of behavior, getting up and yelling at a president, forgetting the fact that he was in the middle of talking about burn pits, an issue that everybody should be united on, would be widely condemned by the leadership and members uh, of their own party even. What, what was your reaction when you saw that? Well, it reminded me of uh, former, well, actually, Representative Joe Wilson of North Carolina. Uh, then President um, Obama. And I actually asked that he wasn't planning on doing it. He actually ended up just shouting and he immediately regretted it. He also talked about being embarrassed about it after there was a lot of fundraising and he just felt that it was the decorum wasn't becoming of the House of Representatives. And I have to tell you what's disappointing is that she meant to do it. I think she planned on doing it. And I don't think that there's any embarrassment at all. And the only thing I can say is, you know, this is, this is the ha people's house. It's not your house. Shout as much as you want to in your own home. But this house belongs to the American people. And I think that there's a certain decorum and respect that you need to give the president of the United States, especially if you expect to get that respect in return. I may not have liked President Obama's policies. I respected the position. And Congressman, what was your reaction when you uh, saw Congresswoman Boebert? It was obviously, it was sad. It was not unexpected. Uh, you know, I think um, Mitt Romney was right, right? And anytime you get to quote Butch Cassidy in a, a political interview, you're, you're probably in the right place. But um, 
uh, Congresswoman loves uh, a senator there, I think, aptly summed it up. Not much more to say than that. All right. Former members of Congress, Mia Love and Joe Kennedy, thanks to both of you. Good to see you again. Why the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee is growing more concerned about Vladimir Putin's state of mind. Senator Marco Rubio will join us next. We're back with the breaking news in our world lead. In just a few hours, Ukrainian and Russian officials are set to meet for a second round of talks in Belarus. This is after Russian troops attacked several major cities in Ukraine overnight. Let's get right to CNN's Nick Robertson, who's live in Moscow for us. And Nick, these same officials just met on Monday. That didn't seem to have any impact on, on Russia's aggression or brutality. What are you hearing about this second round of talks? Yeah, you would think, right, if you're still at war, if Russia is still bashing you like crazy, uh, what's the point in peace talks? Well, the Ukrainians have sent a delegation, the Russians have sent a delegation. It does seem like from a, from a Russian standpoint, it's a pretty low tier delegation. These, these officials are not ranking anywhere up there that carry any particular weight from the Kremlin. Secretary Blinken, I think, summed it up when he said last time round, uh, Russia's expectations or demands were beyond excessive. Uh, there's no way that they're going to be adhered to. Uh, the Ukrainian side, they want a ceasefire. The U.S. says you're going to need to have a ceasefire before you can really have a, a diplomatic track. The reality is, as you say, Jake, with the fire going on, it's just hard to see how you can have meaningful talks particularly when the Kremlin doesn't send what you might see as a serious negotiating team. Nick, Russia has seen seven seven days now of anti-war protests across their own country. Thousands of demonstrators have been arrested and detained. What's going on? Yeah, more than 7,600. It's not something you're going to see on state TV here because uh, the Kremlin wants to keep this protest uh, as quiet as possible. They're arresting pretty much everyone they see showing up at these protests. Uh, I was just looking at video. We're waiting to to verify it before we put it on air. But this was a a lady who was in her 90s, maybe. She was survived the siege of, uh, of Leningrad in the Second World War. She's got two posters. She's this tiny old lady and there's two cops in riot gear and then swarmed by others to arrest her. Putin doesn't want an anti-war narrative. He wants that stopped and shut up. But more than a thousand people a day for the last seven days have been getting arrested. So this isn't going away right now and may gain uh, further momentum, Jake. All right, Nick Robertson in Moscow. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. He's the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He also serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Rubio, um, you're part of the gang of eight that's members of Congress who get access to the most classified, uh, most sensitive classified information. You've been very publicly tweeting about Russian military movements, what's going on in Ukraine, Putin's mental state. Uh, You say you're not sharing classified information. I'm I'm sure that's true. Can you explain why you have decided to give the American people uh, these insights, this this play by play? Well, first, thanks for having me on, Jake. As you're well aware, you know, the, the administration has been very forward-leaning in what it's been putting out there. In fact, if you go back and read the things they've been disclosing for two, three weeks, um, it, it pretty much laid out exactly what Putin was going to do, and a lot of people were skeptical that was going to happen, including here domestically. And so now, as that begins to happen, you try to synthesize that for American audiences. Look, I'm asking the people of Florida, I'm asking the people uh, that follow me to care. Uh, people forget, but seven or nine days ago, there were still voices in America saying either this wasn't going to happen or this was none of our business. And so I think it's important to lean forward if we're going to ask the American people to be supportive of the policy measures we're going to be taking. 
and are focused on these sorts of issues. And you've got to outline to them not just what's happening, but why it's happening, what Putin's ultimate goal is, et cetera. And, and, and to me, it's very important. I think the other thing this reveals, by the way, is we've entered an era uh, where, for lack of a better term, open intelligence is out there every single day. I mean, even on your own station, it, whether it's the videos from the ground that are being shared by people or the overhead imagery from companies like Maxar and others are revealing a tremendous amount. It's hard to hide things anymore in the, on, in the world. You can't mass 190,000 troops uh, on the Ukrainian border and it not be noticed by somebody. So, so all of these things are a combination of a new era information is now a, a combat space and the fact that I think it's really important to take what's already out there in the public record and synthesize it with what's happening in real time so people understand what's occurring here and what's going to come next. Sources tell CNN that the U.S. Intelligence Committee has made a priority of trying to understand Vladimir Putin's mental state. Uh, you've noted before, you and I have talked about how he's uh, having emotional outbursts uh, in contrary uh, in contrast to his past behavior. What are you hoping U.S. Uh, intel will find and, and how could it help the, the West? Yeah, I think it's important to understand the context of it. This is not about whether the guy's crazy or not crazy or, you know, got some other issues. I know that's a lot what a lot of other people assume. This is about the following, and that is we should not assume that the Vladimir Putin of 2022 is the same guy that he was 10 or 5 years ago. His risk calculus is very different, and I'll tell you why it is. It's because he's older now. His time is running out on this earth. I mean, he knows that. He's about to turn 70. and He's not going to be around for 30 more years to, to deal with all this. He views himself as a great historic figure in Russia. Every great Russian figure in history has conquered territory. He views it as a historic legacy to restore greater Russia. And, and, uh, and you can't do that unless Ukraine is something that you control and have at least a vassal state. And, uh, and so he's deeply committed to this if you, if you look at what he's moved forward. But I also think he's someone that has shown if this is a guy who's always prided himself on emotional control, almost stoicism. For him to flash the sort of anger that you've seen is an indication that we're dealing with a different guy. And I'll tell you why that's important. It's not a curiosity. It's not to mock him or to troll him. It's because he may be willing to take escalatory steps now that the old Vladimir Putin would not. And, and I think that's important because a lot of people that were out there saying he wasn't going to invade, well, the old Putin wouldn't have invaded, but the new one, this one will, because his calculus has become very different than it was not long ago. And that's important for policymakers to keep in mind. There are some real dangers here uh, of escalation. Former Trump National Security uh, Council official and Russian expert um, Fiona Hill told Politico, quote, if anybody thinks that Putin wouldn't use something that he's got that is unusual and cruel, think again. Every time you think, no, he wouldn't, would he? Well, yes, he would. And he wants us to know that, of course. That is a chilling assessment, especially when one considers that he has nuclear weapons. Do you agree with that? Well, I would say, look, his economy is in free fall. The Russian economy a week from now is going to be in a very terrible place. He is clearly suffering battlefield humiliations. He has a no-win strategy. He can't win in Ukraine. He's either going to have a very costly, drawn-out military engagement victory, you know, but after a long term, or he's going to be caught in a quagmire where he's fighting off 40 million people. Remember, he's not just fighting a military here, he's fighting the people. So he's going to have the military humiliation, the economic collapse that's on its way to Russia, and he's got very few options to go back and, you know, stabilize the strategic balance. He can't sanction us, you know, he can't. So what are his options? His options that remain are cyber and space. And, and creating new provocations like these threats of nuclear weapons. And that's why it's concerning. At some point here, it's my personal opinion that this guy is going to have to create some new crisis or some, some, something. He's going to have to do something to reset the strategic balance and force everyone to the table with him. Um, and it could be a combination of things, including uh, a siege of Kiev where three million people are being starved to death. Your colleague, uh, Republican Senator Ben Sass, told me yesterday 
that he thinks uh, lawyers in the administration are slowing down the process of sharing uh, real-time intelligence with Ukrainians. Take a listen. We know that the Ukrainians want more lethal, actionable, real-time intelligence. And right now, they're not getting that. The process is overly lawyered right now by the administration. It isn't good enough to tell somebody where a tank was 10 hours ago when the tank's now at the doorstep trying to do the kind of bombing we've seen in Kharkiv. And my understanding is that the NSC itself has not issued any guidance on intelligence sharing with Ukraine and that they, they signed off on what the Pentagon proposed. If there is an issue causing a delay, where is it? Is it in the Pentagon? Is it in the CIA? Where do you think it is? Well, it depends, but ultimately it'll be in the hands of legal officers and then ultimately that of the president. I mean, you know, the president has the power to declassify and share intelligence with whoever he or she chooses to do so. Let me, let me say with intelligence, I think that we should lean forward in providing actionable intelligence. I think there are a couple factors to keep in place. Number one, can it be communicated in a secure way? And when by actionable, it has to be accurate. You don't, you know, a lot of times people think intelligence is just as black or white. As, uh, it's oftentimes it's an assessment. It's a highly educated guess. You don't want to make a mistake, especially since the Russians have shown a capacity to adjust tactics. They did it in Syria when they met setbacks and the like. You don't, uh, the Ukrainians have limited resources as is. You don't want them chasing one thing when in fact uh, things change on the ground and, and, and they find themselves in the wrong place. So there's some complexity, but generally speaking, I, I share concerns that some of that may not be getting there fast enough. And, and even today, there's been work done to, to sort of assess that and make sure that any sort of unnecessary impediments are removed. The Vice Chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Marco Rubio, Florida, thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks. your time, sir. Thanks. President Biden's Supreme Court nominee just spent her first day on the Hill talking to senators. And we now have a better idea of when that confirmation vote might take place. Stay with us. In the politics lead, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson are set for March 21st. Two and a half weeks, Judge Jackson today started her first round of face-to-face meetings on Capitol Hill, including with the Senate majority and minority leaders, as well as the top Democrat and the top Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee. CNN's Jeff Zeleny's on Capitol Hill for us. Now, Jeff, by when do Democrats plan to have confirmation wrapped up? Well, Jake, Democrats hope that they will have the confirmation hearing completed that week of March 21st after uh, she's introduced a couple days of questions and then additional witnesses. But they hope for a full Senate vote by April 8th. That is before the Senate leaves for their Easter recess. So this is a a pretty expedited timeline, but not as fast as the timeline as everyone will remember from Judge Amy Coney Barrett, of course, in the, the weeks leading up to the 2020 election. So that's what Democrats are using as a marker here. They're saying this is not without precedent. They're simply following the uh, procedure. And she also has appeared before the uh, Judiciary Committee just last year. So they're very familiar with her. But Jake, as we watched her uh, walk around Capitol Hill today, it's true that senators are familiar with her. And Senator Chuck Grassley, the top Republican on the committee, he promised a fair hearing. One of the things that would be my responsibility as leaders of the Republican on this committee is to make sure that we have a fair process, a dignified process, and that we uh, will uh, make sure that uh, that it's uh, that we don't repeat some of the mistakes that were made by other people uh, in the Kavanaugh hearing. 
So, Senator Grassley raising the Kavanaugh hearings. Of course, that was Brett Kavanaugh during 2018. Those uh, sexual assault allegations uh, roiled those hearings. Senator Grassley and other Republicans say they do intend to treat Judge Jackson fairly. Of course, anything could always come up during these hearings, but Democrats are confident she's been confirmed three times before for lower positions that they are well aware of her background. Jacob told she'll be meeting with another bipartisan group of senators again here tomorrow, heading up to those confirmation hearings beginning in just two and a half weeks. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Appreciate it. She was pushed out of her job by Donald Trump and his White House, but now she's back working for the Biden White House. That's next. Breaking news right now, breaking by me right now, a National Security Council employee pushed out by former President Trump and then National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien has been rehired by the Biden administration. Ellen Knight is her name. She was let go from the NSC because she had been pushing to approve the publication of former National Security Advisor John Bolton's tell-all book, The Room Where It Happened, about his time in the Trump White House. Knight, a non-political appointee, was tasked with removing all sensitive and classified information from Bolton's book. Once she did, she okayed the book for publication, but Trump and his Justice Department and NSC lawyers stepped in to stop it, and Knight was later let go. Bolton told CNN today he applauds the decision by the Biden White House to restate Knight after her, quote, disgraceful firing by former President Trump. Finally, the intersection of our sports and world leads, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich just announced he plans to sell one of the most popular soccer teams in the world, Chelsea FC, and the billionaire with close ties to Putin says he plans to donate all net proceeds to victims of Russia's war in Ukraine. Abramovich says the money will pay for war victims' immediate needs as well as for the long-term recovery and rebuilding of Ukraine. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN or listen to our podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.